Every new Toyota comes with peace of mind standard. That's because you get Toyota Care no-cost maintenance when you buy or lease any new Toyota. Toyota Care covers normal factory scheduled service for two years or 25,000 miles, whichever comes first, as well as 24-hour roadside assistance and lockout protection. See your Toyota dealer for details and exclusions. Valid only in the continental U.S. and Alaska. We make it easy on you. Toyota, let's go places. We could all use a real vacation right about now. Lucky for us, Princess Cruises has a port right here in L.A. Starting at $89 per day, Princess can take you to the beaches of Mexico, the tropics of Hawaii, or along the California coast. That's right, just $89 per day. Set sail with L.A.'s Cruise Line. Call 1-800-PRINCESS, visit princess.com, or contact your travel advisor. Terms and restrictions apply. Promotional pricing ends November 30th, 2021. Ships are Bermuda and British Registry. Before booking, consult the CDC website at www.cdc.gov. Tartan. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on tonight's show. I have a very special guest. We're doing a live show on YouTube. His name is Jason Horsley. I was I talked to him in 2017. He and I also did a show about an earlier book he published titled Dark Oasis, A Self-Made Messiah Unveiled. And it was about a guy in Canada by the name of John or John DeRuder, who um, is kind of a new age figure. But on tonight's show, we're going to talk about a book he recently published, uh, I think last month. In, was it April or May? April or May. The uh, title of the book, uh, which is an excellent book, I've read through it. Uh, the title is Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering, and the Psychology of Fragmentation by Jason Horsley. Jason, are you there? Hi, Bill. Hi, how are you? Good. Sound good and clear. We kind of had a, a few little technical issues, but... Uh, why don't we start by by uh, you talking a little bit about your background and yourself and how you came to write this book? Hmm. Okay. Well, I suppose it started with discovering Whitley Strieber. Um, As, who who was Whitley Strieber? Yeah, communion, right? So Whitley Strieber was a horror writer, a novelist who was extremely successful, extremely quickly which uh, certainly with my current mindset, I view with some suspicion. I probably didn't back when I first discovered him. I, I guess my first exposure to Whitley Strieber would have been watching The Hunger, which is a Tony Scott movie. Um, I, and that was his second novel. His first novel was Wolfen, which was also made into a movie with Albert Finney, which I guess I also saw when I was an adolescent. And uh, But obviously I didn't register the name Whitley Strieber. The thing is, is he did become quite popular just as a horror fiction writer. And then in 1987, he released the book Communion, which was had the subtitle A True Story, and that was the account of his apparent <clears throat> abductions and uh, experimentation at the hands of uh, non-human beings, including a rape, as it were, technology and perhaps physical you know, like a actual organic rape as well. His stories are very, um, they're very hard to sort of pass out and to extricate the fantasy from the fabrication, from the reality, from the possible metaphysic or uh, psychic kind of experiences that he's undergoing from what I would say that relate to human uh, mind control. And, but, None of this was I was aware of when I discovered communion. I just uh, 
read about him in a UFO magazine in Mexico. Uh, and it took me back to the whole UFO thing, which I'd actually been interested in as an, as an adolescent for a brief period and then sort of forgotten about. And this was at the beginning of my my path as a spiritual seeker. I was in Mexico after having read Carlos Castaneda and <clears throat> trying to find a, a Don Juan, you know, shaman, sorcerer to apprentice under and somehow I came across this magazine in, in deep South Mexico, and I was fascinated by it. I think it was an interview with Strieber, and I ended up getting a copy of Communion when I went to San Francisco. And uh, it's a very powerful account, I would say, even now. And uh, it had a profound impact on me, and specifically I began to... Um, let's say, use it as a lens by which to try to reinterpret some experiences I'd had in the past, like uh, nightmares and night terrors as a child, and a feeling of somehow being violated or interfered with by something incomprehensible, which I now would attribute more likely to some sort of sexual interference. But anyway, reading Strieber, I went straight for this more cosmic narrative. And <clears throat> subsequently, I had quite a, a long series of, of dreams and visions myself of some sort of non-human intervention or interference over a period of 10 years or so. Um, but communion was huge. Wasn't it super popular? I mean, I think he sold million, a million copies. Or It's really one of the primary sources for extraterrestrial phenomenon. Would you agree with that? Except with the proviso that extraterrestrial is not a term that Strieber uses that much i mean he, he sort of sits on the fence there he hedges his backs there but certainly in terms of anyway it's some non-human slash alien slash extraterrestrial presence interfering but then the now well-known ufo alien abduction narrative which of course the neck the x-files completely popularized and you know fictionalized uh i'd say you can trace it i mean you can trace it back in terms of just testimonies to Betty and Barney Hill in the 50s, but in terms of it actually becoming, yes, a popular uh, narrative that was un sort of recognizable by millions of people, it began with communion, I think. Yeah. Right. It had the cover with the kind of gray alien with the big eyes, very uh, dis distinguished cover. But that wasn't the only book that you were influenced uh, by that was written by Strieber, right? No, well, that's the thing, because communion impacted me that deeply that I read all his other books. And although I would say his follow-ups to communion, of which there were many, uh, were generally inferior, at least they got, I guess they got less and less interesting, uh, except for providing clues such as I look for in Prisoner of Infinity. But in terms of powerful testimonies, they became kind of less and less uh, interesting to me. But I carried on reading him. And then in 2000, I believe it was, he released The Key, he self-published it, which was the supposedly a transcription of the encounter that Strieber had with a uh, a god man, like a like a divine being in human form, who burst into his hotel room in Toronto at two in the morning or something, and just started reaming out or reeling off all of this profound wisdom that Strieber's account, and he scribbled it down and then later released it. And that book I found at the time and for many years to be a very profound book. Yeah. So, yeah, my, my view of Strieber was I had a very, very high view of Strieber for many years. Um, I considered him one of the most important and profound thinkers, uh, you know, of our time. But um, 
uh, yeah, over time, as you've read in Prisoner Infinity, I had to kind of recalibrate my viewpoint of him and his output. And how did that process kind of uh, develop as you kind of questioned what he was up to? Well, it's like, uh, I guess it's it's kind of classic thing is when, you know, in the, in the conspiracy narratives or the uh, discovering some plot against you or discovering a crime's been committed. You know, it starts with something small. There's a clue which is usually an anomaly of some kind. I guess all clues are anomalies. That There's things that don't seem to belong there and they indicate something has happened that you didn't know had happened. So um, with Strieber, it was, uh, it was actually, I think it was related to his spat with Daniel Pinchbeck. Um, although I didn't know about that at the time, but he and Daniel Pinchbeck, who's the the uh, reality sandwich guy, the author of Breaking Open the Hens, is a sort of entheogen advocate, um, got into a... Perhaps. Yeah, psychedelic. They got into a spat because Pinchbeck was claiming that the, the beings that Strieber was in contact with were malign. This was on Strieber's show, Dreamland, and uh, Strieber had a bit of a freak out on pinchback and i think it was because hearing about that because i was writing about streber that uh, i was writing this essay that eventually expanded out into what became prisoner infinity over a period of about 10 years um i think because of that i ended up listening i wanted to hear the conversation myself and i was really surprised by how uh histrionic streber appeared to be like i'd already projected this idea of him of this very grounded very sane very rational very wise being person and he, he came across in that interview as somebody quite distressed quite fragmented fragmented quite confused and and i was like well that's really not the streamer that i got the you know the, the impression of through his writing and um, when was that? When was that discussion with Pinchback? Do you remember? I don't remember the year. No, it must have been in the early two thousands, two thousand and five, something like that. And I mean, it wasn't a big deal, I suppose, uh, on Whitley's end. But I know that Pinchback talked about it and wrote about it, and they had a complete falling out. Like Strieber said, "That's it. You're not my friend anymore." It was very, it's kind of almost infantile the way that Strieber reacted to that. And I don't mean this as a criticism of Strieber's personality. Obviously, it's none of my business. But I mean that it it, it indicated a a gulf between the sort of the profundity uh, profundity of the information that Strieber was presenting, and the person himself. That you know, the 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 messenger, the medium, right. or the messenger. I mean, he had that kind of public image too. That was this is a guy who went through a profound experience with discarnate entities or beings, and and you know, I, I think that. He'd be on the top, you know, one of the top ten people as far as this phenomenon was concerned. And he in that Dreamland, that radio show, I don't know if he still does it, but that was also mm -hmm. very popular, kind of in the vein of coast to coast and stuff like that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's hard to say how popular Streber is. One of his, his MOs is he's constantly complaining about how few people pay attention to him and how how poorly his books sell, but. As I said, you know, he was a very successful writer from his very first book. He must have made an awful lot of money on Hollywood deals. And he's continued to make Hollywood deals, sometimes relating to his nonfiction work, uh, as in around aliens and, and whatnot, and other times relating to 
uh, like the day after was a huge Hollywood blockbuster that was inspired by his coming superstorm with Art Bell. So he's not really a marginal figure. I mean, it depends how you define marginal or relative to what. But no, you're right. He, he's really somebody who's had an enormous amount of influence, even if of, a lot of it's indirect and sort of under the radar, I'd say. And, and then, I mean, he has kind of a curious history as well. You talk in your book, you talk about, you know, 1968 and where he was and what he was doing. I mean, maybe you can talk about where he's from and his sensibilities and, you know. Mm. Influences yeah, it's tricky. It really is tricky. It's like an octopus, as I said in the book, not the Strieber himself, but the sort of the you know, everything around him and his history. And it's like rap- grappling with an octopus because there's so many different uh, threads of the narrative. And this was really what made writing Prisoner Infinity so compulsive and so rewarding and so difficult to finish because I kept you know, every lead I followed, often my wife was actually following them for me and then sending what she'd found, um, led to this whole new sort of wealth of, of data points to so potentially it was expanding exponentially. So yes, for example, the year of nineteen sixty eight, that became uh, this hub of you know strange phenomena around Strieber that seemed to have very little if anything to do with non-human beings and as in most of the cases of the leads that I follow Strieber himself provided it so when Strieber was uh, hypnotized after his abduction or whatever experiences he was hypnotized by by uh, Bud Hopkins which is a very key detail because Bud Hopkins well let's say he has some dodgy affiliations and certainly he was the leading one of, if not the leading proponent in the alien abduction narrative and somebody who actually worked with supposed participants and putting them under a hypnosis and helping them in quotes to remember in quotes their experiences of alien abduction. So, so Strieber went to this guy Hopkins and uh, he he dredged up all of these memories um, that included early childhood later childhood and the year 1968 and it was nothing specifically non-human about the year 1968 but there were these there were definitely some very anomalous things that Strieber remembered and they involved this woman that he met uh in in Barcelona I believe it was or on the train in Europe anyway um and he went there with Rome and he, he has these memories of being in his this apartment and being right. um, manipulated. He was for weeks, right? Yeah. yeah, he had missing time. He had right. these fragmentary memories of taking this bitter substance, possibly being drugged, of them being surrounded by shadowy figures and manipulated as in physically maneuvered in order to have sex with this woman. Uh, he had a vision of the, de- the, the satanic head in the, in the, uh, vat- the catacombs of the Vatican, which I have no idea even if, if tourists can go to the catacombs of the Vatican. Uh, uh, and, um, and all of this was supposedly going on in this one year of 1968 in which Strieber graduated from the London School of Economics, although he never talks about that, but he's listed on the, the uh, alumni of LSE, which That's is right. a Fabian Very school. prestigious, yeah. Very uh, um, London Film School, which is in his early biography on the back of The Hunger and Wolf, and it says Strieber has done diverse fields, including intelligence work and an underground filmmaker in the late 60s. So so who knows? Was there any proof of those films that he made in the 60s? 
Well, they haven't been discovered or right. disclosed. I mean, Strieber has referred to it since then. He's, he, he acknowledges or he backs up this claim and specifically says that he made a film about the process church of the final judgment, who any researcher of conspiracy and such, social engineering, I prefer to call it, um, knows is, is, is a bit of a strange attractor in, in and of itself. Um, well, there's a correlation with his ideas, too, because they believe they were in contact with discarnate entities, too, you know, when they traveled to uh, Mexico, right. Tool, they were supposedly summoning these beings. So, you know, and how in-depth or how, what his, I mean, if he's doing a documentary on the process, how in-depth is his relationship to that organization? Yes, and uh, he himself claimed, I think, in conversation with Peter Lavender, it's quoted in the book, that he was contacted by the British Foreign Office uh, in relation to the process church and told that they were sacrificing people in pyramids in Mexico. And he, he sort of implies that the British Foreign Office contacted him in order to recruit him. He doesn't make uh, the direct correlation with the film, as in he doesn't suggest that the film documentary was an undercover you know infiltration in the process church that would be you know one could extrapolate that but as with Strieber's narratives they they don't uh, necessarily come together in a clear picture you just have these different pieces that um, become more and more suggestive the more uh, that you look at them um, but I'd say you know one sort of very striking thing about Strieber the sort of incongruity with Strieber is this whole London period, I mean, the way that he describes it, um, suggests somebody who was uh, involved in strange phenomena, who was also involved in the underground 60s London scene, i.e. a hipster. He was hanging out in the pheasantry on King's Road where Eric Clapton was living. Uh, this guy, Martin Sharp, was his friend. This was the lead that I followed to discover all this because he mentions Martin Sharp in Transformation just in passing. Um, he, Martin Sharp was the illustrator of Oz magazine, which was um, a very, it was a pioneering uh, countercultural magazine, like the sort of psychedelic artwork that we're all familiar with now from that period was pioneered by Oz magazine. So even by this guy, Martin Sharp, was Streeper's buddy. Um, and that, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that magazine had a, a piece on the process church around this period. Um, so that's the time. It also had a piece on Jimmy Savile, who was everyone in Britain knows about who was particularly active in this period was involved in child trafficking to the elites as far as we know with the Cray twins and the Cray twins can also be um, located uh, around this area the King's Road like they were running um, betting you know uh, right. illegal betting things <coughs> <clears throat> so anyway and I talk about Dryberg and all those guys in the 60s too hanging out with the Crays so there's Crowley Absolutely, yeah. Crowley. Yeah, I mean that's that, it's an amazing era too in London. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a hell of a nexus. You've also got Polanski living there, getting married to Sharon Tay, of course, and he was linked to the Mansons and thereby to the Process Church. Right. So, I mean, it's obviously one can't sum up or one can't make a, a case for uh, a narrative just by uh, juxtaposing all these different elements uh, without taking many hours to do so, which I think I, I, I pretty much do in Prisoner Infinity. But I, I mentioned it. Uh, in a shorter time frame now, just to indicate how Strieber's general persona of this pretty down-home, regular, 
Texas guy who knew nothing about nothing when he had his alien abduction experience. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, just all of these kind of things exploded into his awareness. And that, that's been his persona, like throughout his career as a spokesman. Um, it completely contradicts the the image and the, and the, the facts really of Strieber as this underground filmmaker hanging around a very cutting edge really of yeah well films. he was very young too I mean sixty eight he had to be in his twenties right yeah yeah so, was, well he was born forty seven so he'd be late twenties so. late twenties yeah it's interesting you brought up William Sims Brainbridge too who wrote oh, right. a couple a couple books about the process one that was just republished in twenty seventeen yeah. by Feral House who's par free just passed away. He was the, the head. The Bainbridge, yeah. Yeah, but I was just correcting that. I was, it's, he would have been 19, you're right. He would have been very, very young. Very young, yeah. So he's, a, I mean, a young, impressionable, very heady environment um, around these very strange cults who were moving around. And in, in London at that time, you know, the process was very active. It had their own houses and yeah. meetings and all kinds of music, things that, you know, at that time were really remarkable. Yeah. So Strieber acknowledges his interactions with the Process Church, specifically their Mayfair flat, their dogs, that he ran afoul of them. He doesn't say why. And that they chased him over the rooftops with their dogs, the German shepherds, I think they were. But on another occasion, and this was in conversation with Lavender, in communion, he just talks about running across rooftops because of a raid, uh, which, which so certainly made me think out of, some important facts. Yeah, well, maybe, I mean, it's confused memory, perhaps. Um, but anyway, he, he, certainly he, he got sufficiently extricated with the Process Church, whether, uh, you know, in tandem with his recruitment by the British Foreign Office or not, but certainly that was part of what was going on. He made this film and so on and so forth. Um, and, and then in the same period, in much more detail, he describes this ongoing encounter with this, uh, Irish woman, I, have to, I always forget, confused Irish and Scottish, because uh, Mary McLean, I think her name is, the, the founding, of the right. two founding members of Process Church was was uh, Scottish or Irish, I forget. I'm pretty sure they were both from Scotland, or she was definitely from Scotland. Okay, she was definitely Scot Scottish, then Rosen, who Strieber ended up having this affair with, was, was, uh, was Irish, okay? So it doesn't mean it's the same person, obviously, but still, same general area. And this woman seduced him to the way that Strieber described him in the early days was something of a dominatrix, of a very strange, erotic, uh, mysterious woman who initiated him into this 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 deep sexuality that also included this shadowy group that were drugging him, perhaps, and physically manipulating him to have sex with uh, um, with her. And during the same period, he says that he discovered a costume in her um, luggage that so terrified him because he thought it was a living being. He thought it was a living being who'd been folded up inside a suitcase, and which is a very strange thing to recount in and of itself. Like, why would somebody mistake a folded up thing for a living being? Presumably because it was so lifelike. He said he saw its eye. And he says, or has said, that it was an alien costume. I mean, I beg your pardon, a human costume. And I think the inference that he wants us to make is, is that perhaps this woman was an alien, you know, that like the female being on the cover of communion, who pretended to be human and carried a costume around. Now, I'm far more inclined to turn that around and say, well, perhaps 
part of what Strieber was undergoing or being subjected to through this kind of initiation slash um, exploitation, let's say, or mind control, uh, involved uh, people dressing up as aliens because there does seem to be some. There are testimonies to testimonies that. Testimonies of that happening, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, correct. So perhaps he found a costume that resembled an alien in a suitcase, and that was equally terrifying to him. But whether because he was mind controlled or whether because he's he's deceiving, I don't know. But that he's he's turned it around in such a way that essentially he reframes all of those experiences from London as sort of fragmentary memories of early interactions with the visitors rather than as I've attempted to do in Prisoner Infinity to look at all of his experiences with the so-called visitors through the lens of of human cult manipulations. Right. I think that's really a fascinating, I mean, I had my mind opened to these uh, ideas that you had in your book in a way that I hadn't had in a while because it was fascinating the way that you juxtapose his things with kind of human psychology and whether what's happening to him isn't, you know, external from him, but internal, that there's that possibility that this is really uh, something coming out of his own personal psyche, right? Yes, I wouldn't say it's either or. Um, And it's not like I'm just diagnosing Strieber as a, you know, paranoid schizophrenic, having hallucinations, far from it. Um, Certainly something external appears to have happened to Strieber, uh, whether it was more than just human in, uh, interference, I leave open to question. But even if we allow, uh, or even if we restrict it to human, you know, interference, similar to what we know about MKUltra, and by the way, we haven't talked about this, but Strieber's own accounts of his childhood suggest, and certainly the location of San Antonio and the time period of the early 50s and the Nazi doctor that he names, uh, not that that name particularly is, is, is known, but anyway, just the fact that there was a Nazi element suggests that Strieber was a victim of MKUltra as a child. Um, that the, There seems to be evidence based on Strieber's case, at least, that part of that... Uh, psychic fracking that MKUltra was engaged with was geared towards um, tapping into and harnessing uh, some sort of psychic phenomena that may very well interface with entities out there or or it could be synonymous for it could it's possible that psychic fragments become autonomous and then they become as entities i obviously i don't know the answer to that but there's a very long tradition as you know of demons and jinn and so on as you know discarnate or inorganic entities interfering with human beings not just interfering some of them can be benevolent um that you know, obviously predates MK Ultra. I mean, goes goes way way back, fairy lore and so on and so forth. And Strieber's narratives certainly intersect with that as as much as they do with MK Ultra and more modern conspiracy law. So that is a big question mark, right? You know, right. But still, I mean, he the way that I think he brought into the psychology of you know human psychology and his experiences are remarkable and give a lot more credence to this idea that this is some kind of, uh, you know, rescue from internal traumas that people have had. And if you extrapolate it out of Strieber, then it would make sense that this, some of this UFO, so-called UFO phenomenon are, are 
something happening within the minds of people who've been traumatized when they were young, right? Yeah, so I'd say within the psyches and the bodies rather than in the mind, because something happens in our mind, we, it's more like a fantasy or a daydream, whereas this is, as Strieber's case indicates, it's psychosomatic, not in the sense of being imaginary, but in the sense of actually affecting and coming through and expressing through his whole psychosomatic system. And then, I mean, that does raise the philosophical question, of, you know, what is real if not, you know, a full body psychic experience? Um, so it isn't, it's not, I don't aim to reduce these experiences, but to couple them to the known psychology about trauma and dissociation and our defense mechanisms and the way in which we will create what I call crucial fictions around unbearable trauma, um, that they do represent something real, but they also conceal it and they disguise it from our awareness so that we won't see the true nature of it. Yeah, interesting. I mean, you kind of likened it to your experiences, to his his life and how trauma uh, affects people's behavior. But yeah, his, I mean, and the other, you know, he had some very, testament of some very odd things. I think he was really the progenitor of the whole, you know, anal probe, rectal probe story, which is, you know, all kinds of sexual elements to that. I mean, isn't that, isn't that really the truth that, 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 story that he tells it's been ridiculed by you know south park and people like that wasn't he the progenitor of the the first person to really talk about that or was it somewhere else no i think you're right about the rectal probe in fact it's even it's it's directly associated with streber and it was yeah south park was 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 making fun of streber himself there not just i think they were i think yeah right well one of the early i think from the first season the little kid uh yeah, he had the you know aliens insert something. Out. Right. And well, so, but I was thinking they actually had this little Strieber drawing in there, but maybe. Oh, I maybe. think you're right. No, I think they did have the little aliens. Yeah, now that I remember. Yeah, it's interesting. The aliens, yes, but not Strieber himself. But anyway, it's a bit of a sidetrack. But I think I know that Strieber took it personally. He felt they were making fun of him on South Park, but that may just be because he had this experience and they were making fun of of this experience. Um, I mean, that that experience is certainly key to Strieber's narrative. He still refers to it now. He refers to it as a rape. He refers to it as something he never fully recovered from physically or psychologically, which in itself is, is a bit of a red flag, you know, in, in context of this person who is a proponent for the, the, the positive nature of his experiences. Like, it, it's, it's, it's like a footnote. Yes, he's been transformed. He's been turned into this kind of uber shamanic uh, best-selling author who who gets to testify and share his experiences of other realities and just has the most interesting life you could possibly imagine anyone having. But there's a footnote like he, you know, wakes up in, in terrors every night because uh, and he still bleeds, has rectal bleeding, and he's still traumatized by the rape. You know, that's that's that doesn't really belong as a footnote in my mind that really it's like um again it's like this reversing it's like he's inverted something i would i would say that something that traumatic requires an equally profound uh spin to deal with it if you're not going to deal with it you know to avoid really dealing with it because i mean let's face it if, if if you or i were taken by possibly non-human but but certainly seemingly omnipotent beings in the middle of the night manipulated tortured abused um the 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 possibility that they were malevolent 
and did not have our interests at heart and was simply doing it for you know the worst possible reasons would be so terrifying right yeah it's already terrifying it's odd how they have both of that thing like this non-terror but also these entities are you know benevolent one of the interesting things is that that alien that's on the cover of his book was female i didn't know that until i read your book Mm. Female and yet apparently had a penis uh, some of the time at least because yeah, he describes having a penis punched into him and then being forced to suck something which he doesn't name and there's an awful lot of quite weird sexual, sexual aspects to it imagery and aspects and reference in Strieber's narratives but he himself conceals them and I mean here's an example of literal concealment in his book The Supernatural with Jeffrey Kripal who we haven't talked about yet, but he's as much the subject of the book in, in many ways. Um, Strieber refers to his, uh, very briefly to his period in, in uh, Europe in 1968 and this woman and says that they were they had an, a chaste adventure together. And that the context for that is, I think, but anyway, he certainly talks about it in the same book, that he had no sexual experience before he got married, except this very fleeting thing as a child. So Sriba has rewritten his narrative. I mean, I think he's been continuing to rewrite it, but he's not, you know, as far as, like if a politician uh, wants to cover up his past, then generally he has a team of people doing it. And they do a very thorough job, I think. They don't, they don't leave stones unturned. They just make sure that if somebody's investigating, it's going to be pretty hard to find that stuff that's going to compromise. Well, Strieber, uh, he's got hours and hours of uh, audio footage out there. He's got thousands of blog posts, and I didn't go through all of them by any means, but it, it never took very long to find something, not exactly incriminating, but let's say that invalidated and showed the stark inconsistencies in his narrative. He's all over the map, really. He'll say one thing, and then practically within the same sentence, he'll he'll say something that's completely contradictory with that. And that, to me, is so that that then we're talking about something more than just somebody who's dissembling or lying or fabricating. We're talking about somebody who's so severely fragmented that they are exhibiting the symptoms of. Uh, dissociative identity disorder as it's called as in they shift into different sort of memory streams different personalities and interesting that's an interesting observation i mean he came out with a new book that reassesses communion right within the last few years i was trying to find that online solving the communion enigma yes yeah yeah that had an introduction by jeffrey kripal of course the supernatural he wrote with kripal together that was more recent, and Kripal also um, wrote about Strieber in Mutants and Mystics, and uh, I think another book, or yeah, The Traumatic Secret, was just an essay. Uh, so, I mean, Kripal has adopted Strieber, you could say, as his sort of his favorite, his chosen or his pet uh, case study for mm-hmm. Kripal's thesis, which is that uh, trauma can lead to experiences of other dimensions and even of enlightenment enlightenment right that's right and that was really what your data has the power to do the extraordinary but first you must integrate trust govern and manage all of it that's the informatica intelligent data management cloud the only platform dedicated to data management cloud first data always learn more at informatica.com radio 
On Veterans Day and every day, Boeing's community partners offer over 800 ways to support veterans and their families. Because our duty is to you. Learn more at boeing.com slash veterans. But presumably, as they work, was me confronting that thesis that Kripal has and refuting it because they think it's completely wrong. Kripal actually also wrote an introduction for a book, um, The Dark Face of Heaven or something. I, I forget. I don't know if you know that book. No. It's by a woman who also claims to have had experiences of other dimensional beings. And, you know, I looked at that where I tried to read, well, I tried to read Sacred Encounters. Um, and uh, it was just quite incoherent, really. I mean, it was like, you know, how these, the accounts that abductees come up with, they're very fantastic. They're very, they take the guise of spiritual experiences. Like right. the, the, the people who recount them, recount the ways in which they've been transformed, the ways in which they've come to come into touch with a deeper level of reality. But in many, or I would say most, if not all cases, the individuals who are testifying to this, they seem to be unbalanced. And the experiences they, they describe, they're also, they're like sort of adult Disney movies or something. You know, there's something kind of coarse about the narratives. They're just, they're such a literalized version of the numinous and of the divine. Now, I wouldn't rule out that they might be being interfered with by, by demons because, you know, I'm not closed to that possibility at all, a Christian interpretation. I know that's been the standard one about UFO. Yes, I think that's now the common common conclusion among the Christian community that aliens are demons, that yeah. they're extra-dimensional and they're malevolent. They're not positive. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't go that far because I, I'm not Christian. And I don't think that Christianity in its true sense is dualistic. I really don't. I know that they have angels and demons and it appears that way, but I think that Christianity... But you know, more properly understood, and I'm presumptuous here. But let's say the way I understand it, it's not actually a dualistic religion, even though it has a satanic figure. Satan is not equal to God. Right. Well, that no doubt. Yeah, that's right. true. So, so then demons. Uh, I mean, rather than attributing malevolence, uh, I tend to just, just by their fruit shall you know them, really, to look at the effects. Right. And so experiences. I mean, Kripal's, his argument is, is that extreme trauma can um, cause us to, and this is uh, Strieber's too, because it's shattering the mirror of expectation. It can cause us to, um, or force us really, to, to let go of our interpretation about reality and to lose our filters and therefore become open to, exposed to, or vulnerable to higher, deeper aspects of reality. Now, I would agree with that in theory, but um, uh, it's it, 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 <laughs> you can't separate that. And if you if you just present that interpretation and you leave off the table the whole psychological um, effects of trauma, right? The long term yeah, effects. Yeah, the the case that. studies that we right. ne we have and know about <clears throat> dissociation and how dissociation works. Now, Kripal and these others will say that. Uh, yes, it's a dissociative strategy, but no, it's not, it's not just fantasies that they're having. That through dissociating, they're encountering real realities. Well, okay, but they're still 
encountering them in a dissociative state, which is to say as a defense against something that has trauma. Like unreality or something experiencing unreality. I think it's a difference than a, than a standard person's reality. That's yeah, the, well, that, that's, number, right? that's number one. Yes, it's very hard <clears throat> to really integrate it with, with the consensus reality. So you end up like uh, Schreiber, this outlier, this sort of shamanic prophet, techno-prophet, um, who has to have wilder and wilder experiences and keep topping himself. Right. Because I would say the experiences, he's starting from a place that's not really possible to integrate. Like, this is why there's this whole ongoing thing about contact and disclosure. You know, when will the aliens disclose themselves to us so that they can be integrated into our consensus? Well, the answer seems to be never. And the reason being, I think, is because they're, they're well, they're not really integrable. Like, they're... They're, <clears throat> they're closed off, like the opposite of disclosed, right? <clears throat> they're closed off to only be experienced in, in different situations, or through right. trauma, which leads to right. dissociation, which the, leads I, to... You know. yeah. I think they can only be experienced through some sort of fragmentation and dissociation. As in, if we're fully whole, if we're fully in, in, uh, integrated and embodied, and uh, you know, at home in the mundane, right. then no, there's, no, there's going to be no... It would be like the elemental spirits, the spirits of nature. It's, it's, they're, they're in nature itself. I think even that, yeah, most of these alien events happen at night, right, in a sleep state or mm -hmm. some other type of state. Usually, they're not walking down the street at three o'clock in the afternoon, generally, right? So they're well, always just three, but he, okay, he maybe it's three. Okay. Yeah, like uh, his 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 publishers saw them in a bookshop criticizing communion and stuff. Like, who wants to have it all, really? Um, I mean, it's interesting you bring up the whole trauma, Savile associated with 1968 he was in i think he was in either oz or something or one of these process publications yeah, yeah. but here's a awesome. guy who's causing trauma for years right and according to some of those accounts there's ritualized trauma where these people are terrified of, of savile you know mm -hmm. really terrified and so yeah. he's able to and some of those people are probably those are fractured dissociative types i've run into people who were children who went through the children of God. Oh, I was in Berkeley. There was a children of God presence. If you know that whole pedophile yeah. cult. And I didn't know when I was younger, 1920, I didn't know what was happening, but this person would literally dissociate in front of my eyes and just whole different process and bounce back in and out. It was, and it was when I'm older and I've read this stuff at a more kind of literal level, I can understand what this person was going through, but these dissociated states definitely happen for people who've been traumatized, you know? Yeah. And it f folds into MK ultra and all these things that you integrate into your book. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's such a central part of our culture. I mean, not just MK ultra, cause that has become a cultural commodity with American ultra and all these movies that are, popularizing it and even x-files i think had some kind of mk ultra elements in there for sure um but i mean i don't mean in that sense i mean in the sense that well we don't know how many people are victims of mk ultra or similar programs uh you know the the figures vary as they say but at the high end it's very high as in ritual abuse researchers i mean wendy hoffman suggested to me that it might be as high as one in a hundred people who've been victims of ritual abuse. Um, 
and don't I mean some of them don't remember it. there's a large percentage who don't remember I know that can seem like a sort of cop out well you know you could say that about anything then right they don't remember but based on my own experience the the notion that is rejected by many people that extremely traumatic events do get blocked out by amnesia barriers is true right yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, certainly if you're young, okay, if you're older. But the thing is, when you're older, you're not so easily traumatized. Um, but if you think when you're very young, um, you don't uh, process memories through through thought or even visualization, I don't think. I'm not sure about the visualization part, but I would guess you don't. You certainly don't have language. So you don't, you don't file memories in the same way. They go straight into the body. So you could remember an abuse thing that happened to you when you were one or two and you wouldn't know you were remembering it because it would just be a body memory. I think I've had these experiences, certainly in dreams and nightmares, I'd say. Assume, I mean, I don't totally assume that they're memories, but I do. Uh, I can't explain them otherwise because they're very, they're very vivid, but they're purely affective. I just experience the sensations. There's no, nothing visual, there's no narrative, there's no individuals. It's just a bodily sensation or a series of bodily sensations. Um, so where was I going with this? Oh, MKUltra. Uh, so the, the extent to which MKUltra has shaped our culture, particularly, I mean, even if you just have a bunch of traumatized pe children growing up to be adults and, you know, they're part of the culture, they're obviously going to have an influence. But if, as I argue with Prison Infinity, that one of the goals and successes of MKUltra is to engineer cultural figures who will have influence, partly because psychic fragmentation is a way to generate charisma, I believe, because you can create an altar. Like imagine if you can create a program killer, which is the sort of popular narrative, why wouldn't you be able to create a great folk singer like Leonard Cohen or a great you know, Jim Morrison, or writer something. like uh, Willie Strieber. I don't know about Jim Morrison. I, I mentioned Leonard Cohen because there's just a lot of evidence that he was just involved. like a weird scenes, you know, weird scenes inside the. the True. I mean, uh, I, yes, I, I, I think. Mean, I, who knows? Who, who knows? But I think once you start discovering two or three, yes, it, it is a natural uh, extrapolation to at least wonder that you know maybe that this is part of um, cultural engineering by which. Uh, if you imagine you have a thousand case studies or being, you know, subjects of MKUltra, maybe only 10 of them actually take the program in such a way that they really develop charisma and a charismatic functioning social altar, as opposed to just becoming drug addicts and prostitutes and just, you know, train wrecks. And those people can be monitored in their career, you know, they, they get <clears> given <throat> a guitar when they're young. And, and then they get promoted, you know, they get, it's, it's it really, although it can sound paranoid if you say it too briefly, uh, I found that if you just think through these things, it really doesn't require what skeptics tend to assume, this sort of uh, omniscient, uh, omnipotent control. It, it, it requires, you know, a lot of manpower, a good a lot of technology, and um, well-worked-out strategic thinking and uh a very profound understanding of psychology, particularly yeah. group psychology. And there's well, I'm convinced that some of our that. political figures have gone or been exposed to some type of government. You know, people like Bill Clinton, they don't know his background very well. Same with same with Obama. These guys are very strange. You know, CIA connections, strange backgrounds. Um, so you don't know the totality of what these guys are exposed to, and 
you know, how, how uh, secret societies or the CIA is really behind some of these figures. I mean, mm-hmm. and we know that uh, Obama is a very strange cat. He has a weird CIA background, but, the, you know, there's some, some missing years. Nobody can see him when he's at Columbia. Nobody saw him there. So, you know, where is he? You know, that's amazing that somebody ascended to the highest level of power has, has uh, you know, vacant days and times. And Strieber himself has strange connections and yeah, moving around. I don't even know where he is now, or where's he? Is he back in Texas? Yeah, no, he's he's always been in Texas. <clears throat> gotcha. As far as I know, besides touring around and and whatnot. Um. So, but yeah, to the general point about public figures of profound influence uh, seeming to invariably have shadowy backgrounds. Yeah. Um. If you bother to look into them, obviously I haven't looked into all of them. A tiny percentage, but every time I have, I've I found that sort of evidence, um, and well, I, I suspect that um, a big part of social engineering, crowd control, um, you know, directing social progress towards predetermined ends does require and depend on cultural engineering, which is to say, shaping the culture and. In fact, you can't really separate the two, particularly in the present age, where with infotainment and politics as theatre and all that. It's becoming more and more evident that there's an element of theatre in, in, you know, in politics. And uh, I think that, yeah, like a large part of what goes on on the world stage is almost literally theatre, not quite literally, but that it's designed in a similar way, and that. One of the things that's occurring to me now is, is that they, they, as in the social engineers or the, the program anyway, requires uh, keeping the different enactments separate as much as possible so they don't get tangled up because then it could expose the mechanism. So, for example, with Strieber, um, if, you, if you really put Strieber's experiences in, inside the context of what we know about MK Ultra and mind control, they they become something completely different. And um, so, and I think if you see this on the internet in terms of it's what Sims Bainbridge talks about, audience cults, that mm-hmm. people gather together around particular subject and not just the subject, but how they perceive it particular interpretation so this is the problem i'm faced with with prisoner infinity and it's, it's a problem as an author like how to get people to read the book is because it doesn't appeal to any particular audience call i mean p- potentially maybe right. the conspiracy audience call but conspiracy it, right that is a cold it's not the supernatural ufo right i mean because you're you're criticizing the ufo Kind of interpretation of common things, right? So yes, it's 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 definitely it rains on their parade, um, and he, even you've got somebody like Kripal who seems to be, you know, seems to be emphasis on seems a rigorous thinker who's who's looking at the phenomenon through an academic eye. Well, obviously he's he's not. I mean, for example, um, you know, Skeptico, this Alex, what's his face, Cesaris or something? You know that guy, Skeptico. No. Well, he he's fairly well known in the field, and uh, he um, 
I let him know about Prisoner Infinity, and he seemed interested. Well, I sent him a PDF, and he seemed interested. He said, oh, let's, uh, let's have you on my show. But then a couple of days later, he sent me a, um, a video of a UAP disclosure on a mainstream news channel, right? Uh-huh. And, I, and, I, and we had a back and forth, and I was just being skeptical and saying, well, you know, I think they are manipulating the narrative here. And basically it went back and forth, and I, I sensed more and more that he was, he was pushing uh, to get me to acknowledge that the UFO phenomenon was real and it wasn't simply, you know, a manipulated narrative. And I wasn't going there because I don't know that. Right. And and at a certain point, uh, he stopped responding. And so I waited a couple of weeks and I, but I knew he'd taken, he'd, whatever, he'd reacted badly. And I uh, waited a couple of weeks and I sent a, an email just saying, how are you getting on with Christian Infinity? And he, he ignored it. So essentially, having invited me on the show, he he was now ceasing to respond to my emails because he had discovered that I took a skeptical position about the official, unofficial narrative, which Peter Lavender and Tom DeLonge are, you know, okay. busy pushing like there's no tomorrow, literally. Right. Uh, well, it's interesting that you bring them up because <clears throat> their kind of view is similar to what you write about in the book, that there's this whole thing for the space travel that's Strieber, and that's probably, is that part of some of Strieber's, what do you think that's behind him in the social engineering? Is that there's some kind of to the stars mentality from Strieber to the absolutely. long? To the well, absolutely. I mean, that's why I bring in transhumanism <clears throat> in part two of the book, because you can't separate Strieber's thing from this techno salvation narrative, which, um, well, it's, it's essentially uh, the scientific salvation. Yeah, right. Salvation through science. <clears throat> you brought up Kurzweil, right? Kurzweil. Kurzweil, yeah. Bainsbridge is also a transhumanist. Uh, I don't know about Egon Musk and these more, you know, contemporary figures, but I think they're in the same ballpark. Um, even Jordan Pearson, to some extent, I'd say, oh, that's a bit of a reach. But just in terms of offering these sort of scientific models that are supposed to bring about our salvation, well. Transhuman is obviously the outstanding one in terms of, yes, we're going to just turn ourselves into digital data and, and become immortal and, and join the universe. But certainly the UFO alien narrative from a positive viewpoint is similar. Like I used to believe that I was being prepared or had been prepared an alien body that I was going to have my consciousness moved into at a certain point when the end times came. I, I don't really believe that <clears throat> shit. Well, they, they had, I mean, that's interesting because I think you bring up an interesting point about this alien body or future body because both Kurzweil and there was somebody else in the book, they wanted to not, you, you said it's not about immortality, it's about resurrection. Like they want to take the genes from somebody in the past and resurrect them. So yeah. it's not a, some of these more common terms, like singularity, too, you also brought in an interesting <clears throat> reevaluation of what people call singularity as well. Yeah. But I thought that wasn't, I didn't know that, Kurzweil, until I read your book, that it really isn't about immortality. It's about resurrection. It's amazing. And it's his dad. So there's this kind of, and there's a really fascinating theme of psychology that floats through the book about how even Kurt Stryber, Kurzweil, these guys long for their fathers. Yeah, the absent father syndrome and the mother uh, symbiotic psychosis with the mother syndrome. I mean, that's that's a little tough to get into on a, in an interview, but it's absolutely central to the thesis. And uh, certainly, I mean, the whole thing of space travel, um, 
I mean, that's what I look at in the second part of the book is the extent to which the desire to uh, leave the earth, to leave the planet and colonize space has been seeded in us from you know quite an, uh, an early time and certainly back to Jules Verne and H.G. Wells at least 150 years, but probably more if we trace back there. anyway, but certainly and it's pretty easy to fit the UFO narrative into that because even though it's not about building spaceships and traveling to other planets, it's about about other beings doing that coming here to us and so it indicates that signals that space is inhabited that it's calling to us and i mean what john max book passport to the cosmos uh, so there's what's happening is this conflation of this deliberate uh, entangling of the spiritual and the religious uh, drive towards resurrection, towards enlightenment, towards transcendence of the self, towards union with God, and so on, uh, and you know, eternal life. Of course, that is getting spliced together with um, the the technological, uh, well, technology really, and the you know the um, technology is the active element that's going to bring that about, right? Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> So, but I mean, the way Bainsbridge talks about it is, is it's a motivator. It's not as though these people necessarily believe that this is possible. As long as they can convince us to believe it, then we'll be motivated to work towards that. So, for example, you know, all these guys in Silicon Valley, well, they grew up on Star Trek or later generations on Star Wars, and they were inspired by that to want to create technology, to want to colonize space, you know. To, and so they put all their energy, basically, I mean, that's, you could say that's a soft sort of traumatizing in the sense of these kids, they grew up in a traumatic environment, however mildly, and they took refuge in these sci-fi fantasies. And so those fantasies became imbued with this absolute drive to escape reality. So yeah, they're truly motivated, and then it becomes literally about either leaving the body, in the case of transhumanism, or leaving the earth, or both, um, which is about trying to separate from the mother, the matter, from physical, because they remain enmeshed uh, in the mother's psyche because they didn't have a strong father to fish them out and help them to develop autonomy. So, and that's like a universal trauma. Like now, we live in an age where fathers considered redundant. Right, no, it's a good point. Father or not. Probably everybody, like everybody. What's that speech from Fight Club? You know, yeah, we're talking about we're we're just raised by women. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I've been re rewatching Fight Club again. Still a great movie, really good. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it's. And Kurzweil is now what the chief of technology for Google uh, for Google. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's massive. It's really yeah. massive, though. I mean, it's it's pretty easy to get overwhelmed if one were to approach this or, or, or regard it, interpret it in a sort of, you've got to do something about it because we're just surrounded on all sides by whatever this is. I mean, it's just, it's like AI um, is humanity. It's like humanity is becoming a, a, a vessel for AI, but then humanity created AI. So then it seems as though we're, just, we're going to be possessed by our own unconscious I think it's ancestral, actually. I think there's, a, there's some dark ancestral thing happening. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because it, it goes to the title of the book, how you got your title, how this notion of infinity, this eternal concept, 
this idea you can still be a prisoner of it. It's kind of a paradox. It's a paradox, right? But uh, I think that these ideas of the you know in future infinity, and you tie it back to yourself and your own kind of background as well, which uh, it's one of the interesting aspects of this book and your and the book of Dark Oasis. You know. Yeah, well, I, I do. I always try to do that, um, but I think that's apropos as far as linking it to the ancestors, that the prisoner infinity, I think, refers to the the attempt by the constructed identity, the trauma-created identity or the ego, um, to to uh, become immortal. And and that would truly be, that would create a prison out of infinity. I mean, if you, if you were able to, to give eternal life to this traumatized self that's just constantly defended against its environment and, and, and you know opposed to reality that that's hell that's like eternal damnation that's interesting yeah. well i mean is there anything else you'd like to cover we've done a, over about an hour uh, so we've been uh, we've certainly been speeding through it i, yeah. I don't usually yeah. go this fast i don't know why it's like a, well i mean I think it's a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. I highly recommend it. Prisoner of Infinity. The subtitle is uh, UFO Social Engineering, the Psychology of Fragmentation. You can learn a lot from this book. You're, you, you have such a wide, broad ref, you know, reference material, too, of so many different people happening, uh, you know, that it's, yeah. it's a great learning. I mean, you mentioned Space Odyssey, Bainbridge, SRI, all these guys. Well, like I said, it was an octopus. I just grabbed the one tentacle and I found there were all these other ones thrashing around and I had no choice but to right. try and grab them too. Otherwise. And yeah, it could. I was interested to see the finders in that too. That's a, that's like a doctorate, graduate level conspiratorial referencing too. You know? Yeah, well, and that was via Strieber. So there's the odd thing about Strieber. It's this thing they say the secret that protects itself is also the secret that is trying to expose itself. And that that's observable Strieber, like he's constantly dissembling and covering up things, but he's also uh, pointing at things that really indicate the truth. So, for example, he's got a whole chapter on the finders in Solving the Communion Enigma, and it just sort of hangs there. I mean, the context is that something happened to him as a child, right? right. Yeah. Um, you talk but, about that the early trauma. He, I mean, supposedly went to some special school. I mean, right. if that's a true narrative or if that's... Monterey in Mexico school. I suspect that part is is more or less accurate because I've certainly heard quite a, a few other testimonies about special schools and even you know people who are in ordinary schools and then they got they've given these tests to see if they were suitable material for special schools. I don't remember anything like that happening in my case, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. But yeah, a lot of people have talked about that. No, um, definitely, there were there were some of those around when I was in Northern California. You know. There was, uh, what is it, the Waldorf schools, Steiner schools, those were around. They had a nice front door Scientology schools. There's, you know, different stuff. Mm. Yeah, so I don't know, you know, I, you know, I saw some incredible stuff when I was in Northern California because I live close to SRI. I've actually been on the SRI campus. Most people think it's like some small little tube. It's like a college campus. It's huge. SRI is amazing. And it actually, the driveway to get into SRI's, I think Mendel Park Boulevard, you drive right by the uh, Veterans Administration place where the guy who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, mm -hmm. used to work. The guy who was the Mary Prankster, I can't remember his name. Ken Kesey. Yeah, Ken Kesey. Yeah. When we were kids growing up, we used to go 
and play golf there at the Veterans Administration because they had a nine-hole golf course, and he could go and play for free. And literally, right out of One Flew Out of the Cuckoo's Nest, there would be this lineup of these guys all in white outfits. And, uh, you know, I didn't know the significance of it back then. But that, all that stuff, the LSD stuff was all around. Kool-Aid mm -hmm. acid test. I actually saw Tom Wolf in Northern California. He recently passed away, but he was uh, he was in Palo Alto. I ran into him a long time ago. You, he's very easy to see because he's always well-dressed. But, yeah, a lot of that stuff intermeshed over, one, you know, SRI. I know people who worked at SRI, they were weird. I can tell you stories, man. They're amazing. But, yeah, there's some strange birds out there, no doubt. Absolutely. But yeah, and it's, um, I'd say that, you know, the field that you and I are in in terms of alternate research is, is sort of getting more and more of a minefield, not that it wasn't always that. Um, like I said, was a skeptical guy, for example. Like, it's, it seems as though there are, it's almost like it's partisan. Like, there are things that you, you believe and you support, the narratives that you support. And you and I, well, we're supporting the, the sort of pedocracy narrative and the Dave McGowan narrative to some degree. And actually, it seems to intersect with Christians, this narrative, a little yeah, bit. They're um, interested in it, for sure. Yeah. They are. And, and also, like, Jan Irvin's just become a Christian. And so it can go the other way. Like, I've been, I don't say flirting with it, but I've been contemplating it. I didn't know that. So, John. Yeah. Well, you know, the book I wrote after Prison Infinity of Isaac King is looking into Crowley and Occult Yorkshire, my own path. You know, just beginning to see, you know, how deep and dark the the uh, secular sort of progressive rabbit hole is. It not that it led me to want to take refuge in Christianity, but it, it just became more and more like a um, a counterpoint, a contrast, you know, like a rock of sanity by comparison. So um, there is something in that. Like the more we see the, you know, inherent malevolence in the world and like this kind of connive like even striber like what's going on with his agenda you know what's behind him how is he was he a member of the process is he still a member of some kind of weird thing i don't know is the whole communion thing an intentional myth to deceive well i don't yeah i don't think it's that cut and dry for sure and i think that if you have if you want to have somebody who's uh, propagating a narrative and get people to believe it the best best ways make sure that they believe it too right, right, right. um and you know people aren't one thing or another particularly if they're fragmented of course so but i think that the the, the more important question is whether a person in this case streber is is um getting closer to busting their own crucial fiction and and really disclosing the truth to themselves or whether they're getting further from it because it's it's kind of either or you can't just stay in the same relationship to, to your delusions and we all have them you have to either be you know uh, confronting them and, and watching them dissolve which is very frightening or you, you've got to keep piling on you know delusion on top of delusion to keep reinforcing them and i think that the primary indicator that you're, you're going to be doing the latter is if you have worldly success and a lot of validation because then you get your audience call you get people confirming in fact the thing with john deruta right? Right, right. The, the larger his following the more he himself becomes invested in maintaining it but also the more he can tell himself it's true because well all these people believe it right. interesting that's uh, interesting you know and the postmodernists would right. say well it's all 
interpretation anyway. So what's the difference? Right? Does it matter? Uh, so anything know. else that you want to cover before we wrap this up? Um, well, I guess I didn't finish that point about our own field, which is this. I, know, I just wonder if you have this sense too that it's uh, it's quite fraught in terms of knowing who you can talk to without getting pulled into some sort of agenda. You know? Yes. Definitely. Or, or whether you will be persona non grata because you indicate you're not going to go along with the agenda. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think that some people wouldn't even touch me with a 40-foot pole just because I have a, the label of a Christian on what I write or do. So, you know, those I'm done with that. And some people put me in, label me as something else, which is funny. But, yeah, no question. Hmm. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I actually, uh, you'll see an interview I'm going to do with a guy from the Noetic Institute in a couple of weeks, and he was really, he didn't know anything about me, so he was very tent, uh, you know, tentative about doing an interview just based upon everything. And then he actually looked at my YouTube channel and saw that I was willing to entertain ideas from people that didn't fit my mold, you know. So, but yeah, that was interesting. So, you know, some people. So, which guy is that? I'll tell you offline. Oh, okay. Because, you know, the Institute comes up quite a bit in Prisoner Infinity. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. Dan Brown, you, all these things. So, yeah. But, you know, it's interesting. The noetic ideas are, they're not like new ideas. They're actually all through Hinduism, believes in all the same thing that these guys, noetic, you know, they just kind of, not that they relabeled it, but they came at it from a different angle. So. And, you know, that they, uh, they were a front for the CIA with the remote viewing things, yeah. Right. So that, I mean, I think that's what they came out of, right? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I just know that that was one of their functions in the early days. Was to, so I don't know if you're going to ask him that. <laughs> you can give me some ideas and ask him. Let me see where I can find it. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll uh, let me. I'll stop the broadcast. But uh, Jason Horsley, author of Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering, and the Psychology of Fragmentation. I highly recommend this book. It's very well written. You have an excellent prose style. And uh, there's a lot of interwoven fabric in this book. So I definitely think it's it's a five-star worth of read. So Jason Horsley, thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Okay. Good talking to you. Good talking to you as well. For smarter money decisions, LendingTree can help. With the LendingTree app, you can track your finances, compare loan rates, and find ways to cut monthly bills. Download the free LendingTree app and start keeping more of your money. Terms and conditions may apply. NMLS number 1136. It's Black Friday now at JCPenney. Starting Friday, shop thousands of Black Friday deals across the store while they last. Our Yes Please diamonds are only $19.99 each. Bundle up the family in jackets under $25. Plus, update with cookware and cutlery, now $9.99 each after $10 mail-in rebate. These deals are yours for the gifting. Happy Black Friday, JCPenney. Offers valid on select items 1119 through 1121. Conditions and exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details.